You are about to listen to the Friends of Anchor podcast, which keeps you up to date with the inspirational work of the Friends of Anchor charity and everything that it's doing to support cancer and haematology care in the northeast of Scotland. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Friends of Anchor podcast. In this episode, we will be hearing from clinical nurse specialist Rachel Hall, as well as finding out that there is more to a stem cell transplant than the name suggests. We will also be exploring the connection between the subject of one of this summer's blockbuster movies and the development of stem cell transplants. But at the risk of disappointing some listeners, my spoiler alert is that the influential character in question is not Barbie. First of all, though, we're going to hear from Erica Banks of Friends of Anchor about recent events and some exciting milestones that have been passed in the last few weeks. I started off by asking Erica how she got on when taking part in the kilt walk and if she felt that her training had paid off. Well, I'm delighted to say that I didn't get blisters the size of planets on my feet after doing the kilt walk. I really enjoyed it. It was a really, really enjoyable day. I know I sound so surprised, but it was so lovely to see so many other people out in their charity t-shirts and to meet so many of our friends of Anchor Walkers. So it was a very successful day and very successful fundraising, just tickling distance of £70,000 raised by our walkers, which is phenomenal, especially considering this year things have changed around slightly and the Hunter Foundation no longer does a 50% top up that they used to do. So given the circumstances, that is astronomical sum. So yeah, very grateful to everyone who pounded the trails for that one. That's just terrific. And it just prompts me to say there's other news on fundraising. The Anchor Together Appeal, I think, yeah. has exciting news. Yeah, really exciting news. So listeners may have seen it in the press if they're local. But yeah, we've just broken the £2 million fundraising mark, which was our initial goal for this Anchor Together Appeal for the Anchor Centre. Amazing. It is amazing. We launched this appeal just late 2018. And we've obviously had a pandemic to deal with in the midst of the campaign. So everything came grinding to a halt then. But to have raised two million is, yeah, amazing. And testimony to the generosity of everyone who's gone behind it. People who've done the bake sales and the marathons and the walks and all sorts of sponsored efforts and donations. So thank you very much to everyone who's supported. Outstanding. That's just incredible. And that's for the Anchor Centre that I think is now officially opening at the beginning of next year, we hope. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. As soon as that facility is open, it is going to be an excellent place. And we've been crunching the numbers and the cost of running Friends of Anchor's services in the centre will be half a million a year. And that's not including our commitment to research and our commitment to the inpatient wards, which are staying where they are. So half a million to run our services. So it means that our need to continue with the fundraising continues as well. So we've hit the two million, but we're by no means complacent. It's it's going to keep pressing on. So you'll see us continue on with our momentum and hopefully get involved as well. Okay, so that is clear. There is still a need and fundraising will be ongoing. Yeah, we're not sitting back. <laughs> Excellent. And going back to the Red Run, you promised that would be a glorious event. And I think the weather was amazing yet again. Yeah, but it did rain. So it started out an absolute scorcher and was kind of too hot to run. And I was kind of groaning, thinking, oh, thank goodness I'm not running this year, although I did have FOMO. But no, it rained a little bit, which was probably really refreshing for the runners, actually. But that's another huge milestone because in the years since they started that event in 2017, the Red Run Committee has now broken 100,000 in their fundraising. That's incredible. It's huge. Six figures. Just amazing. Because in some ways, it's quite a small enterprise in terms of what it's come from. 
Yeah, relatively small organising committee and excellent local support from sponsors. The support they pull in each year to make that event happen so that all the profits can come to FOA is fantastic. So very well done to them. Tremendous. And were the cakes and sweet treats up to their usual standard? Oh, they were off a fine. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. That is good to hear. And what else would you like to tell us about? Well, it's like a milestone sharing episode, this one, isn't it? So this is going back to a campaign that we launched in 2017 to raise £1 million, which at the time, that was our biggest appeal. And that was to help recruit a world-class cancer research team to Aberdeen. So we partnered up with the university and they were trying to raise £3.5 and we were trying to raise £1 million. And collectively, the ambition was to recruit this excellent crack team of scientists to the area to work on oncology research. So we just recently paid our final instalment of our £1 million gift to the university. Fantastic. Which is, yeah, it's a moment worth celebrating because all the work that went into raising those funds and the work that's gone on by the university to get these excellent staff up to Aberdeen is brilliant. So we've got our Friends of Anchor Clinical Oncology Chair, Professor Anne Kilty, and her colleague, who's the Chair in Molecular Oncology, Val Spears. So they're heading up this fantastic team locally and it's really exciting to hear what they're up to. And they put it into layman's terms, which is nice for someone like me all the high flying science stuff is a bit over my head but it is really interesting to see the gains that have been made and it's all happening right here on our doorstep and that's so far reaching it's one thing to have equipment but to have the people does make a big difference absolutely and with us not having access to the labs every day it's easy to forget the exciting work that's going on there but actually breaking new ground in different areas all the time so it's wonderful work terrific what else well we'd like to see some red teas on the go in august so the next event we've got coming up really is our participation in celebrate aberdeen which is a lovely third sector event that's organized really just to champion local causes to get the word out there about what they all do so on saturday the 26th of august we're looking for supporters and listeners to come along and get a red t-shirt and if they don't have a red t-shirt already drop us an email just to take to Union Street for a family-friendly stroll down the street to raise awareness of all the various causes in Aberdeen. So that'll be when we're next out in force and we would love to see people there. So if you're interested in taking part, pop us an email, info at brandsofanchor.org and make sure you get your red t-shirt as well. Yeah. That sounds good. Anything else? I think that's it for me. That's quite a chunky update, isn't it? I don't think it's quite everything because I think you're taking some time off work (laughs) for some reason. Just got this small special occasion coming up. Tell us, go on. Yeah, I'm logging off tomorrow for a couple of weeks to go and get married, which is exciting. Lovely. Lovely. Well, we send congratulations and I'm sure everyone connected with the charity and listening to this podcast will want to wish you all the best for that and that you have a lovely day and that the sun shines. Thank you very much. And you're coming back as Erica Banks still? Yeah, I think it sounds good on the podcast. Absolutely. Erica Banks. I'm going to stick with that for a little bit, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay. Well, we really do hope that's a lovely occasion and I'm sure it will be a very happy one. And you are coming back and you'll be back on the podcast next month as well? Absolutely. I'll see you when I'm a married woman. (laughs) Wonderful. We will look forward to that. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. Something that I've come to appreciate as a result of doing this podcast is the fantastic contribution that clinical nurse specialists make to the work of Friends of Anchor. Back in April, we heard from Angie Shepard about her role as a colorectal clinical nurse specialist. And this month's interview guest is Rachel Hall, whose clinical specialist areas are sarcomas and cancers of an unknown primary origin. I appreciate that you may be feeling that my interview questions are entirely predictable, but I started off our conversation by asking Rachel to tell us a bit about herself and her career to date. 
So my name's Rachel Hall and I've not always been a nurse. I began my career working for the oil and gas industry in HR. So I did that for about five years. And from a young age, when I first went to university, I always regretted the fact that I never studied nursing. So after many, many years of contemplation, I built up the courage to go back to university as a mature student. And I've now been qualified for approximately 10 years, which is wonderful. I feel like I'm fulfilling my dreams and doing what I need to do in life. So most recently, I joined the anchor unit at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. I've been with them for about two and a half years now, and I absolutely love my job. What a privilege it is to work with the patients, colleagues and friends of anchor team. And you're working in what area in particular? So I am one of the clinical nurse specialists who support and care for patients who have a cancer of unknown primary and also sarcoma cancers. Can you unpack that a little bit, what those two terms mean? Yeah, so essentially the people who have a cancer of unknown primary diagnosis, whilst being told and and diagnosed with a cancer is completely beyond devastation, full stop, yet to have the add-on and be told that you have cancer, but I'm sorry, we don't know where it's originating from, is like a double whammy. So those patients require a lot of specialist input, care and attention, as all of our patients do, but just a slightly different pathway. Sarcoma cancer is a very rare cancer. If you think of the body as being held up by scaffolding, so your bones, your connective tissue, your muscles, etc., sarcoma cancers can develop in these parts of the body and blood vessels as well. So not like your typical organs like liver, lung, bowel, etc. So it's very rare. They can be quite complex and usually they generally affect younger people or older people. And your role as a clinical nurse specialist involves what in particular? So we are the key worker essentially for our patients. We help to metaphorically hold their hand throughout their journey from diagnosis, helping to provide psychological support, practical support, attending their clinic appointments, the multidisciplinary team meetings that we have to discuss each individual's case. We can help coordinate and attend these meeting patients if they come in for chemotherapy, meeting them on the wards if they become sick or admitted to hospital for routine chemotherapy and treatments, radiotherapy, even surgery. So we are their go-to person because when the rug's been pulled from underneath their feet, their heads are spinning, they don't know what to think, feel or do. We can sometimes help to centre people and pull everything together, like pulling the strings on a purse together. We also liaise quite regularly with the patient's GPs. If people have got symptoms or side effects from chemotherapy, we can advise them who to contact, any prescription recommendations, speak to the district nurses, the community Macmillan nurses. So it really is a huge circle which encompasses the whole patient care. Fantastic. So would people see you most times they were in or how do you come in and out of a person's visits and treatments? I try to make contact with my patients at the very beginning of when they're diagnosed because that's when they really need somebody. And then just carrying on throughout their journey, I say to them, I'm here for you as much or as little as you need. You're very much in control of how I support you. 
and usually catching up with them if they're coming for their treatment or in hospital, phoning them to see how they're getting on has something that I've suggested or recommended being put into place. So it really is nice and you build up such a rapport with not only the people who were supporting, but their families and their friends. I also meet people regularly outside of the hospital environment at Maggie's Centre. So that's a nice environment where people can come in and have a cup of tea and a chat in a less clinical environment. And of course, making that initial connection with Friends of Anchor, introducing the patients so that they know that Friends of Anchor are there right from the very beginning to catch them and giving them a little bit of a teaser and a taste of what potentially yeah. they can offer. And then we go into more detail as the patient progresses through their journey. And in terms of those links, what's most significant? So Friends of Anchor have a wide array of services that we are so fortunate to be able to offer to our patients. The work is just incredible. They've got the well-being staff. That could range from somebody going to offer a patient an ice lolly on a warm day and having a chat with them. Quite often I've done that. I've seen patients on surgical wards and they've just been feeling really low and upset and I've caught in contact with the Friends of Anchor well-being team emailed please could you go and visit so and so absolutely and before I know it they've been running up to the sixth floor giving a treat box ice lollies just speaking to someone and it didn't take two seconds to arrange but that had a tremendous impact and lasting impression upon that patient that kind of human touch and contact is so important and I think this month is Sarcoma Awareness Month. So yeah. um, please do make us more aware of sarcoma, what it is, what we need to know. Yeah, sure. So you're right. It is an exciting month. There's many different types of sarcoma to be aware of. And of course, they can present in various ways. But I'm going to focus on musculoskeletal sarcomas. So if anybody finds a lump which may affect the muscle area, they need to be further investigated by your GP. If people notice a lump which is larger than five centimetres and is increasing in size or a lump that is deep within the body's tissue and is fixed, they must see their GP. In some cases, lymph nodes may also be swollen in the same area as the lump, but not always. And when you talk about these lumps, I take it they're pretty solid. Yeah, they're hard and they can be painful. They might actually be painless as well. Okay. And sometimes through what I hear from patients, pain can be worse at night time due to the accumulation of inflammation and fluid, etc. around joints, for example. So that's another thing for people to look out for. But the key advice is, If you see or feel something that shouldn't be there or hasn't been there for a while and it is increasing in size over a reasonably short period of time, then absolutely don't hesitate because the GPs would far rather see people at an earlier stage. So if anyone has any doubt, get a checkup with your GP. We're in July now, and this will be aired in August. However, Sarcoma UK, for the month of July, they're running a cuppa and a cake event to raise awareness of sarcoma amongst our patients. And there's lots of work going on behind the scenes. So whilst it'll be too late for doing that, you can obviously still have a cuppa and a cake. Absolutely. But please keep your eyes peeled for any other events that Sarcoma UK are running. And maybe if we talk about the clinical side of things, are there any things that you think are particularly important in connection with your role? 
Yes, NHS Grampian, they're involved in group trials such as the Euro Ewings trial that have actually changed clinical practice over the years, leading to different chemotherapy regimes being used, which ultimately improve the patient outcomes within sarcoma, which is absolutely what we're striving to do. And this is incredible work. Research is ongoing, it continues, and we are involved in clinical trials regularly. We have links with Glasgow and the Royal Marsden at London. They have a massive sarcoma centre down there. So whilst we may be geographically challenged up here in Aberdeen, I try to emphasise to our patients, you are not alone. We are fighting your corner and we can tap into the Royal Marsden, Glasgow, the big Beetson centre to get people that expert advice and input so they don't just feel like it's a one-man band up in Aberdeen you know and you mentioned the importance of research and I think some of that again is funded by Friends of Anchor for you for example Absolutely. I was able to attend a sarcoma conference in London last year. Sounds fun. It was. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) A three-day conference. I actually won the award through Sarcoma UK, which was a fantastic opportunity. There was only two of us out of the UK, so I went down and had a great time. Spent the day at the Royal Marsden as well. I independently added that on to my trip. I thought, I'm in London. How could I not go to the Royal Marsden? And that's when I contacted Friends of Anchor. I said, I really do need to go to the Royal Marsden. And they pulled out all the stops and helped me to financially support that, which was amazing because that trip, not only did it connect me better to the team and the department down there, it meant that I was now opening up, as we spoke about before, those channels for patients. So now I can say to patients, oh, I've been there. I've spoken to the team. I can contact them. So for me to give that reassurance to my patients is just so worthwhile. And that money has bought that for us. That's really good to hear. Also, as an add-on for my sarcoma service, I'm the only clinical nurse specialist here in Aberdeen. Okay. So I've been doing a lot of campaigning and brainstorming and a lot of work behind the scenes to set up a support group for my Mm. sarcoma patients. So I'm actually working with Friends of Anchor and Sarcoma UK and Maggie's to set up eventually a support group here in Aberdeen, be it hybrid, virtual or in person. I've also been working with our um, sarcoma oncology and surgical consultants to create and write a patient information leaflet specifically for sarcoma. Oh, that's good. And also for clinical nurse specialists, usually there is a network for us for information sharing and knowledge across the UK. In Scotland, we don't have that network. So I'm working with Friends of Anchor and also a pharmaceutical company to set that up and lead that for Scotland. So there's exciting things happening. No, that's good. And those things move things forward. And something else that will move things forward, of course, is the new Anchor Centre. How will that change things? Oh, the new centre is just going to be incredible. The new building is going to lend itself well to team working and ultimately our patients will benefit from the closer working relationships that their specialist teams will be able to switch on thanks to the fact that they'll be under the same roof. Because right now we're just dotted around the hospital. Sometimes you don't see a colleague for a couple of weeks. So I really like the idea that we're all going to be brought together and it'll just feel like that family kind of feel. 
And there'll be so many areas for our patients as well to relax and access information or services, which will then enhance their support that they receive. The centre will also provide a safe space for patients and their families to feel welcome and comfortable during their visits. Great. Obviously, Friends of Anchor have a whole range of events and activities that run. Do you have a a favourite? Oh, everything they do is amazing. And I'd have to sit here for about three hours to tell you all of my favourites. But I was fortunate enough to be invited to this year's Courage on the Catwalk by a sarcoma patient, actually. And it was a standout event and one that I will never, ever forget. It was my first time as well. And I went along with a colleague, Angie Shepherd. We had an amazing time. We were so inspired and really overwhelmed by the event and actually the lasting impact. It really resonated with me. Tremendous. So I continue to be amazed and inspired by everyone's bravery and courage. It's testament to Friends of Anchor's commitment to fundraise that we can witness such a gathering of patients and their loved ones who all play such an amazing part and contribute to the success of these evenings. We really couldn't do it without everybody involved. For me, though, it's also tinged with slight sadness felt by many as we fondly remember those patients who sadly are no longer with us. But I am thankful that they were able to shine for you all to see. One of the main advancements with Friends of Anchor over the years is the implementation of the Making Memories funds. And it's hands down the most precious and upliftingly unique and bespoke gift that we can offer to patients and their families and loved ones. It doesn't only make memories for the patients, it also touches my heart to know that when a patient's wishes can be met, it's just immense. I can't even describe how that feels. And as a CNS, from my perspective, the referral process with Friends of Anchor is just so slick and it's a privilege to do. Great. So essentially someone would come with an idea and just say, it would be great if this could happen. And then Friends of Anchor look at that and try to make it happen. Essentially, yes. And sometimes it can be that the CNSs identify that there's a need or we can suggest something. Would you like maybe a surprise of a hot tub being put in your house? Have the girls round for some Prosecco in the tub? Something as simple as that. Or getting somebody home for sadly one last time to open up their patio doors, to look out at their garden, to have their dog around their feet. Even as far as to get married, It's incredible. I had one patient who wanted to do something special for their mum. So selfless. They they weren't interested in themselves, but they arranged a surprise trip for their mum. And to be able to do that, I think it's just incredible. Brilliant. Thank you for telling us all about that. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Rachel. You're very welcome. Is there anything you want to add or anything you want to highlight at the end? Well, the Friends of Anchor wellbeing team, they make such an impact upon patients and their loved ones. The therapists, the ward assistants and the welcome team volunteers, they're just amazing. And we really enjoy seeing more of them just popping up across the hospital. And overall, Friends of Anchor just deliver an amazing, unique service and always with kindness and a genuine smile on their faces, which makes a huge difference to everyone's lives who they touch. In last month's episode, I explained that a new mini-series was being featured in the From the Archives slot to celebrate the contributions made over the years to the work of Friends of Anchor by communities across the northeast of Scotland. We started with a journey up Deeside, highlighting fundraising initiatives associated with DES and DINIT. In this episode, our travels take us down the Aberdeenshire coast, south from Stonehaven. Our first stop is in the Burby 
where a retired gentleman by the name of Jack Glanders raised £6,000 over three years for Friends of Anchor, with his third instalment in 1999 representing the remarkable proceeds from a car boot sale and Christmas raffle. Then, in 2007, the Harbour Bar Darts team from Gordon held a 12-hour dartathon which raised £2,165.50. And finally, in 2008, staff members, customers, families and friends of the Ship Hotel in another fishing village, John's Haven, were able to hand over £850 after undertaking a sponsored walk from John's Haven back up to Inverbervie. That concludes our journey down that stretch of our local coastline, but we will be off on our travels again next time when we delve once more into the Friends of Anchor archives. Moving on to our Finding for Words section, I am joined, as ever, by my wife, Alison, and I think that you want to focus on the stem cell transplant phase of my treatment on this occasion. Why so? Well, I think that the stem cell transplant procedure deserves its place in the spotlight, not just because it was a key element of your treatment, but also because there were lots of interesting points that it highlighted about communication and how language can affect our response to a situation. And I suppose the obvious first point that is relevant here goes back to one of our earlier conversations about bringing someone with you to any meeting about your medical treatment that seems likely to be significant. Yes, I was really surprised that you came out of our initial meeting with the consultant, completely unaware that you were to have a stem cell transplant as the final part of your treatment plan. And initially, I was convinced that you had just made that up, or at the very least that the transplant had just been mentioned in passing. But ultimately, I had to accept that my mind had reacted so strongly to the prospect of extended chemotherapy treatments and the implications for family, my work and all kinds of plans that we had, that it had simply refused to receive any new information and had gone into a lockdown all of its own. And then when the preparations for the transplant began, I think that it was quite hard to adapt to a different kind of process. Yes, I had become used to the various components of each chemotherapy cycle, but suddenly I had to deal with some quite different procedures. First of all, for example, I was required to report to the blood transfusion centre so that stem cells could be harvested, technical term, from me, and then popped into a freezer so that they could be given back to me at a later date. That was all well and good until it was explained that my blood cells had to come up to a particular standard before they could be collected. The threshold was set to 20. 20 what? I know not to this day. But the stakes were suddenly raised when I was informed that if my stem cells didn't reach the magic number by day 3, I would need to be given a rescue drug to help matters along. I have no idea what the rescue drug would have been like. All that I knew at the time was that I didn't fancy the sound of it and that I would do all that I could to reach the required target of 20. But the first results were not encouraging, as I recall. No, indeed. I was languishing in the doldrums with my first score of 1 and then rocketed up to 3 at my second attempt. But you did get there in the end. Yes, I'm delighted to say that after being on the wrong end of a very serious talking to, my stem cells finally got their act together and romped home with a whopping score of 31, which was great. And is there any particular point to that story, or did you just fancy retelling and embellishing it? Well, as you have asked so nicely, I suppose that what I was feeling was that this was all happening to me. It didn't seem as if there was anything that I could do to improve the situation. I was just waiting to see if a number 20 would suddenly flash up on a medical machine. And yet, at the same time, I still had to keep moving forward in any way that I could for my own sake. And if words could be helpful in that regard, for example, by enabling me to explain the situation without being tipped into a downward spiral every time that I did so, I was going to take that. 
It worked in a similar way, I think, to being able to use your term, mental cell lymphoma, to describe my cancer in the first place, or another example was when you kindly described me as ghosty, because I was so pale and wabbit, to use a good Scots word. Saying to people that you had decided that my new name was to be Ghosty achieved the same outcome as explaining to them that my treatment had caused me to become neutropenic, but it made it a different conversation as far as I was concerned. And from what you've said on other occasions, I think that you even had issues with the procedure being called stem cell transplant. To mix my metaphors, I appreciate that you think that I'm just nitpicking when I go down the rabbit hole of splitting hairs over definitions and meanings, but I think that these distinctions can matter. In the case of the term stem cell transplant, for example, I have no problem whatsoever with it being used for the procedure that I experienced, as long as it's made clear that it comprises only half of the treatment being administered. Nowhere in the title of stem cell transplant does it prepare the patient for the chemotherapy blitz that needs to happen before the stem cells can be deployed. To be fair, the briefing that I received from medical staff, and in particular from the Friends of Anchor clinical nurse specialists, made it clear that I should brace myself for much unpleasantness. But it did seem odd that the procedure was always referred to as simply being a transplant, totally ignoring the full-body irradiation that was unfortunately required before the transplant could happen. It was worth it in the end though, but I agree that it was certainly a brutal treatment. And going back to the conversation that we had last month about silence, it was definitely a period of time when you communicated so much just by being there, by my side, without saying anything. Yes, it's fair to say that you weren't up for much chat during my visits at that time. But now you've got me back in full-on discussion mode, so you've clearly got to be careful what you wish for. I couldn't possibly comment, but that seems like a good point at which to conclude our chat for this week. Please do get in touch via FOA podcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk if you'd like to comment or contribute in response to anything that we have said. Otherwise, we very much hope that you will join us again soon for the next instalment of Finding the Words. For this month's and finally item, I thought that it would be interesting to continue with the theme of stem cell transplants and to do some research into the history and development of such procedures. What I expected to uncover was a fairly straightforward narrative of scientists setting themselves the challenge of improving treatments for cancer and working systematically and collaboratively until the breakthrough treatment of stem cell transplants was achieved. Instead, the story was full of surprises, paradoxes and ironies. The first surprise came with the mention in paragraph 2 of the first item of source material that I consulted of a name that is pretty much ubiquitous at present, having provided the title of a recently released major film. That name was Oppenheimer, and the writer acknowledged that J. Robert Oppenheimer's involvement in the development of the atomic bomb as leader of the Manhattan Project was a war initiative spearheaded by physicists. But he then went on to argue that it led to a series of cancer-related breakthrough discoveries arising from the subsequent intensive investigation and analysis by teams of biologists of the radiation issues caused by the detonation of the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The author went on to acknowledge the additional irony embedded in his narrative when he explained that the stem cell transplant procedure that emerged from this research, and which has been so beneficial for so many patients, is built on a paradox that cuts both ways. On the one hand, cancer is caused by exposure to radiation, and on the other hand, a major means of treating cancer in the form of stem cell transplants now requires the human body to be blitzed with radiation prior to stem cells being administered so that a restorative healing process can then take place. 
So where does all that leave us? I hope that I'm not being too simplistic or naively positive if I take the following points out of those surprising interconnected factors. Firstly, it is amazing and a great benefit for all of us that despite the connections and links being entirely counterintuitive, scientists have managed to identify and develop healing processes and treatments from such unlikely contexts. Secondly, while the understandable preference would be for negative circumstances not to feature at all in the landscape of our lives, it is remarkable and heartening that understanding can come out of chaos, healing can come out of destruction, and hope and purpose can come out of pain and dismay. And on that philosophical note, I'm going to sign off, hoping that you will join us in September for the next episode of the Friends of Anchor podcast. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for joining us this month, and please get in touch with your thoughts, feedback, questions and suggestions via email at foapodcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you and your podcast where you want to go. 